Father, I pray that you would so work through your word this morning that Psalm 25, 14 would be true of us. And there David wrote that intimacy with you, friendship with you, your secret counsel is for those who fear you. And to such people you make known your covenant. Lord, would you please work in our hearts to make us fear you, that we might know your covenant, that we might understand your ways, that we might be those who are yours. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 24, and we'll be looking today at this, this chapter that tells us about this moment when Moses ascends the mount. And uh, I think that a moment like this is, is probably in David's mind when he writes Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, and he asks the question that we heard read earlier from Psalm 24, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? This is this is the occasion when Moses is going to ascend the mount. He's going to go up into the mountain, and it's as though he's going into the very holy of holies, into the direct presence of the Lord, and he's going to be on the mountain with the Lord from chapter 25 through the end of chapter 31. And Moses is going to be up there on the mountain being shown the, the pattern of the, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, and he's going to be receiving all the instructions about the temple that we will read as we work through chapters 25 through 31. And the people, over the course of that 40-day period, will be down at the foot of the mountain making the golden calf. But in this chapter, as we work up to that moment when Moses is going to go up the mountain into the presence of God, we, we have this occasion in which they enter into covenant by the blood of sacrifice with the Lord himself. And so what I want to start with this morning is reflecting with you on the place of the Mosaic Covenant in the Bible. Why was the Mosaic Covenant given? Why was it necessary? And what is it seeking to achieve? And to answer that question, we really have to go back to Genesis 3 and even back to Genesis 1. So God builds this fabulous world... And, and I would suggest that we are to understand that God has built the world as a cosmic temple, a place where he intends to take up residence with his people. And he gives one prohibition. You're not to eat of this tree. Well, the prohibition is broken. And because sin has entered the world through one man, death has entered the world. Because the warning on the prohibition was, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And God is the one of whom it can be said, in him was life. And life is so absolute and so complete and overwhelming in God that if any uncleanness comes into contact with his life, the unclean thing dies. And so the man and the woman are driven out of God's presence in the garden and they can only enjoy the presence of God by means of sacrifice, a sacrifice dying in their place. And we're going to see in this chapter the way that this Mosaic Covenant is going to be ratified. But I'd like, with, I'd like for you to look with me for just a moment at Galatians chapter 3 
And the reason I want to take you here is because I want to urge you, in your, in your efforts to put the whole Bible together, I want to urge you to do everything that you can to be rigorously biblical. And if there is some system of interpretation that is proposed to you or that you get exposed to that is not rigorously biblical, I would encourage you to revise the system in accordance with the Bible. So I just want to draw your attention to some things that Paul says here in Galatians 3. And um, um, what's going on in, in Galatia is that some Judaizers have come in and told these Christians, you really need to be circumcised if you want to be included in the people of God. And Paul, in Galatians 3, uh, 7, he begins to say, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And then he makes this remarkable statement in verse 8. He says, the scripture foreseeing. So the scripture foresaw, he says. It's, it's as though the Bible is personified. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The Gentiles... Paul is quoting uh, Genesis 12, 3 here, will be blessed in Abraham, okay? And then he, he goes on to say, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verses 10 through 14, he begins to object to the imposition of law-keeping, circumcision, one aspect of law-keeping, onto these Gentiles. And he speaks of how all who, are, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, and then he, he eventually he says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So he's picking up here the way that the Mosaic law has introduced a curse on everyone who fails to keep it. And the resolution to that is that Christ becomes the curse on behalf of his people. So that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus... The blessing of Abraham. Notice he doesn't say the blessing of the Mosaic law. He doesn't say the blessing of the Mosaic covenant. No, he goes back to the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then in verse 15 he says to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now what he's talking about is the fact that the Abrahamic covenant had been ratified, and you don't add the Mosaic Covenant onto the Abrahamic Covenant as though the Mosaic Covenant has to be kept in order to receive the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant. So look at what he says there in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law that we're about to read about in Exodus 24, which came 430 years afterward. He's picking up that number from Exodus 12 that the people of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. His point is, God made the promise to Abraham. The Gentiles are blessed in Abraham. And the Mosaic law that was added 430 years later is not to be added on to the blessing of Abraham. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now he goes on to basically explain that the law was put in place to keep Israel and to, 
to, to guide Israel until the coming of Christ. And then once Christ comes, the function of the law, the purpose of the law comes to an end. Because when Christ comes, the new covenant is made. And in order to fully appreciate the new covenant in which we relate, relate to God, we need to understand the old covenant. So let's go back now and look at Exodus 24. And my prayer, again, is that this will cause us to fear God so that we will be those to whom he makes known his secret counsel. Psalm 25, 14. You can translate this word that's at the beginning of that verse in different ways. You could say intimacy with God is, or you could say the secret counsel of God, or you could say friendship with God is for those who fear him. So we want to be people who fear God. And then it goes on to say, and to them he makes known his covenant. We want to understand the covenant. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 24. And, and let me just briefly uh, try to set Exodus 24 in light of things that we've seen to this point in the book of Exodus. And I'm, I'm just going to start with verse 19, or chapter 19. So let me invite you to look at Exodus 19 verse 8. You know, they've come out of Egypt and they arrive at Mount Sinai. And the Lord makes this initial set of promises to them in verses 4 through 6. Moses goes up to God on the mountain, Exodus 19, verse 3. And then the Lord says to him, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, in verse 3. And then he rehearses how he brought them to himself. And he says in verse 5, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak. And then Moses comes down the mountain. He speaks the words. Look at verse 8. It, it's as though at this point God is saying, here's the deal. Here's my offer, nation of Israel. If, if you'll accept my offer, I will make you the nation of Israel. You'll be my people. And the people respond, we'll take the deal. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now that's quite a pledge. All that the Lord, I mean, that's a dangerous pledge because he's holy, right? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they say. Now, the reason I draw your attention to Exodus 19.8 is because look at Exodus 24, verse 4. Moses goes up on the mountain then, back in chapter 19. The Lord sends him back down the mountain, and then the Lord speaks the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then he goes back up on the mountain to get more instruction that we looked at in chapters 20 through 23. And then in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules... And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So 24.3 is basically the same as 19.8, where the people say, everything that he says, we'll do. And in between those two statements, we've seen that the Lord speak the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, and then Moses goes up the mountain, and the first thing he does at the end of chapter 20 is he, he gives him instructions about altars. And then at the beginning of chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 11, he gives him instructions about the calendars, the seventh year of release. And then we get some death penalty instructions, and then 14, when this happened, cases. And then some more death penalties, and then 14, you shall not, statements. And then some more calendar statements, and then uh, again, at, at the end of chapter 23 that we looked at last week, um, some more statements that, that pertain to worship. So you start and end with worship, 
Then you move into calendar. Then you move into what they are not to do or how they're to handle different cases. And that's the whole of that book of the covenant. And now, uh, now in chapter 24, Moses is going to bring this book of the covenant and they're going to ratify the covenant that the Lord has laid out for them. One more comment about chapter 23 before we go on. I didn't have time to, or didn't take time to make this observation last week. But in Exodus 23, 20, that statement, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the, to the place that I have prepared. Uh, that statement we saw last week is picked up in Malachi 3.1. And, and Malachi is basically saying, As the Lord led us to the promised land after the Exodus, uh, so the Lord is going to send a new messenger to prepare the way when I do the new Exodus. And we saw in, in, in Mark chapter 1, that Mark quotes that with reference to John the Baptist. And I didn't note last week that this is also stated, these basic words are stated back in Genesis 24 when Abraham sends his servant to go get a wife for Isaac. Now, the, the importance of this is that the, Abraham says to his servant, the Lord is going to send his angel before you to prepare the way. And now the Lord is saying to Israel, the Lord is going to send his angel before you to prepare the way. And Abraham's servant... Uh, goes and gets a wife for Isaac, and the Lord's servant, Moses, is bringing the Lord's covenant partner into the land where they are going to dwell in covenant together. So there's a, there are marital overtones, and there are Abrahamic connections that are going on here that are, I think, significant. So with all that preparation, let's look at Exodus 24, and in verses 1 through 4, we'll see the preparations made for their worship of the Lord. So Exodus 24, verse 1. Then he said to Moses, the Lord says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Nadab and Abihu are two of Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So what this says is that you, you've got Mount Sinai and Moses alone is going to ascend to the summit of the mountain to enter into the direct presence of God. And then these others, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, they're going to ascend apparently partway up the mountain, but Moses alone is to draw near to the Lord. And then the people are to be down at the foot of the mountain outside the boundary that has been set around the mountain because the mountain is holy and if any of the people even touch the mountain they're to die. This creates a structure that exactly matches what we're going to see once the, the instructions for the tabernacle and then later the temple are in place. In that scenario only the high priest will enter into the Holy of Holies and then only the priests will enter into the holy place and then the people are to are to not, they're not allowed to enter into the tabernacle or into the temple. They're to remain outside in, in the camp. So we've got the same kind of structure going on here. And it's as though Moses, even though Aaron is there, it's as though Moses is the high priest and he alone can enter into the presence of God. And I would invite you to let that sink in. God is so absolutely holy that if you enter into his presence when you have not been summoned, when you have not been authorized, 
we all know what's going to happen. Death is going to result. Because his holiness is in all the right ways intolerant. He does not tolerate wickedness. He does not tolerate failure. He is holy. And the only way that someone can enter into his presence is if the sacrifice is offered and if the person is authorized. And at this point, only Moses can go there. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now, these people have seen the fire on the mountaintop. And they've heard the thunder and they've seen the lightning and they have felt the earthquake. And back in chapter 20, we saw how they reacted when the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments. They basically said to Moses, this has got to stop. Because if this continues, it will kill us. And the Lord says, over in, in, when this story is retold in Deuteronomy 5, the Lord says, they're right. They're right in what they have spoken. And so they say to Moses, Go up on the mountain, you get everything he's got to say to us, bring it back, we'll obey all of it. And so that's, that's now what we're dealing with. So the people have directly experienced God, and look at what they say in verse 4. All the people answered with one voice. All the words that Yahweh has spoken. Okay, so they've heard God from the mountaintop, and they've also heard Moses recount everything that we've read from the end of chapter 20 through chapter 23. And Moses has recounted all this information to them. He probably wrote it down. We're going to see in just a moment, well, in the next verse, a reference to writing. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So Moses has probably come and read them the book of the covenant. And their response is, okay, we have heard the Lord's voice in what Moses has written. Do you hear what I'm saying to you here? The people recognize what Moses communicates to them as the word of God. The people recognize. Look what they say there in verse 4. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They know this is God's word. And they know it not because a, a, a magisterium like the church, as the Roman Catholics claim, told them, hey, this is the Bible and you're to obey it. So, so I am taking exception here to the Roman Catholic understanding of Scripture. They think the church tells the people what to believe is the Bible. The Bible says, uh-uh, the people heard the word of God and the people recognized God has spoken. And, and I submit to you that this kind of thing is all through the Bible. If you read the Bible closely and watch for this kind of thing, you will see it everywhere where the people of God recognize that God has spoken to them either in the words of a prophet or in a letter like what Paul writes or in a gospel that, that is contained in the New Testament or some other, you know, even the book like the Song of Songs. The people recognize this is God's word. And that's why we regard these things as Bible because the people of God have recognized that the Spirit of God has inspired these things, not because some authority has said these are the books that you are to regard as the Bible. That's not the way the Bible recounts it. So all the people answered with one voice in verse 4 and said, notice what they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They understand not only has God spoken this, 
This is authoritative for us. This is obligatory for us. So they understand that they are subject to this, that they must obey it. And I want you to know that this is what we as elders pray for you. We pray that you will hear the word of God and that you will recognize in it the voice of your father who loves you, your God who made you and redeemed you, and that you will hear the voice of God and, and you'll know his fatherly authority. He loves me. He made me. He redeemed me. I must obey him. I want to obey him. Verse 4, Moses wrote down, all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar. And it's not outlined here, but I think we should remember what we had at the end of chapter 20. If you look back at chapter 20, verse 24 and 25, the Lord says there, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And then he says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So Moses is now building this altar, an altar of earth or non-hewn stones at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So they've made preparation at this point to worship the Lord. And now in verses 5 through 8, we're going to see the making of the covenant, the cutting of the covenant. So verse 5, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of, ox, of oxen to the Lord. Now, Moses doesn't spell it out here, but in the book of Leviticus, we'll read a lot of information about what went on in the offering of burnt offerings and the sacrificing of peace offerings. And in all these instructions, the worshiper is to place his hand on the head of the animal, and it's as though he's leaning on the animal. And it's, it's, as, it's almost as though he's imparting his guilt to the animal so that the animal is then dying a vicarious death in the place of the worshiper. And, and, and on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is to put both hands on the head of the animal, and then he's to confess his own sin and the sins of all the people of Israel over the animal, and, and then uh, one of the animal dies, and the other, the, the animal over whom the sin was confessed, that animal is sent outside the camp to bear the sins away from the camp and thereby cleanse it. But here Moses just abbreviates that. I think he's assuming that his audience is going to keep reading, and, and in this, I mean, when the event happens in history, the audience is going to be there at Mount Sinai, and he's going to receive all the instructions that are now in Leviticus. But, so all this is assumed at this point. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So again, this is like what's going to happen uh, in, that we're going to read about in the book of, of Leviticus. And, and why, would, why would some of the blood be thrown onto the altar? Well, I think the answer to that question comes in Leviticus 16 when, we're, we're, when it's explained that on the Day of Atonement, the, the tabernacle itself is being cleansed of transgression. It seems that when they, when they lean on the animal, they impart their sins to the animal, 
And then the, the Lord says in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the body is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement on the altar. So it's as though the blood now has taken on the guilt of the people, and they take that blood, and when they throw it against the altar, because the tabernacle has to be cleansed, it's as though the sins of the people are being communicated to the house of God. It's as though God himself is bearing the sins of his people. And, and I think this is connected to the way that in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, when, when the Lord says who he is, when he says that he is a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that word translated forgiving, you could render that word bearing or carrying iniquity. So the Lord, it's as though he bears the sins of his people. And I think that happens when they take half the blood and they throw it against the altar. It's as though the, the sin is transferred to the Lord. And, and then the blood is going to be applied to the people because the death counts for them. So it's like the, it's like the sins and the guilt is transferred to God and then the death is transferred to the people. So the verse goes on to, or we, we go on to read um, in verse 8, Moses took the blood, this is the blood that he didn't throw against the altar, the other half of it, and, and threw it on the people. The New American Standard translates it, he sprinkled it on the people. So, I mean, imagine this scene. How many animals would have been sacrificed? We're told that there are 600,000 men. There are perhaps 2 million people gathered on this occasion. All these animals. And, I, and so I suspect that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the whole tribe of the Levites, they probably all got something like hyssop branches, and they're dipping these things in these basins that contain half of the blood of all these sacrifices, and then they're sprinkling it on the crowds of people, moving through the crowds to cover everybody with the blood. And we'll come back to verse, uh, the end of the, verse 7, but look at what verse 8 goes on to say. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you the text there that literally says that the Lord has cut with you. The Lord has cut the covenant. How was the covenant cut? Well, it was cut in the cutting of the animals. In, in the, when the animals were cut and their blood was drained, that's where the covenant was, was made. In accordance with all these words. Now, all these words, I think, refers to everything that we've been seeing from Exodus 19 when the Lord first makes the offer to the people in verses 4 through 6, through chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and then all those instructions that we got in, at the end of 20 through 23. So back up in verse 7, when it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. I, I think that probably what he's read to them is, is essentially what we have here in Exodus 19 through 24. And, and he reads to them this, this initial deposit of revelation. And they respond again here in verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses is, let me just draw your attention to it again. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So these, these words that the Lord spoke got processed through the brain of Moses. And, and Moses 
chose, he made choices, and choice implies meaning, he made choices about how to arrange, what to include. I don't think this was just a a word-for-word dictation thing going on. Moses is is operative here. He's he's an active participant. He, he He writes down what's been revealed, and then he reads the book to the people, and they respond, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So they've recognized that it's God's word. They've acknowledged its authority. And that also implies they've understood it. And this is why we believe that the Bible is clear enough for the people of God to understand it. We, we, we hold to the perspicacity of Scripture, which just means it's understandable. You, you don't need a priestly class or you know, a magisterial authority to tell you what the Bible means. So let me urge you, read the Bible with your brain turned on and assess what people tell you. Assess theological claims that people made by the standards of the scripture. Use your brain. Think about it. Examine it. Don't just let somebody tell you, oh, this is what the Bible means. I may have related, I can't remember whether, I, I, I know I've told many of you this story, but not long ago, we, we had some Roman Catholics over for dinner, and I wanted to work through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 with them just to, to lay out what the scriptures teach. And, and so we, we have this nice, enjoyable dinner together, and then we begin working verse by verse through the passage. And we got to about verse 4 or 5, and, and the lady to my right, sweet lady, happy, joyful lady, she pipes up and she says, you know, we can keep doing this if you want to, but it doesn't matter what that book says. The church tells us what the Bible means. And I want to urge you, that is not the way the Bible teaches the people of God to respond to the Bible. The Bible, I think, would teach you, hey, I'm understandable for you. And and I'm the word of God. And, and, you know, I would encourage you, you you should read closely these so-called apocryphal books. I think if you read them closely, you study them closely, you'll see signals that their authors are, are basically sending to say, hey, I'm not Bible. I'm not scriptural. Don't put me with the books of the Bible. And then with the Bible, by contrast, when Paul says something like, have this letter read in all the churches, he's essentially saying, this is Bible. This is scripture. This is authority for you. So the people recognize all this. They've understood the Bible. They've they've recognized it as the word of God, and they've committed themselves to obey. And then The covenant is made. The covenant that's made is the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant. And that's put in place until the time when Christ comes. And when Christ comes, he fulfills the terms of the Sinai covenant and he brings to pass the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And we saw in Galatians 3 that Paul is not treating those things as though they are coterminous. In other words, Paul is not saying, well, the Abrahamic covenant, that's just the same as the Mosaic covenant. And Paul is also not saying this. Well, there's this actually this thing called moral law. And it was given to Adam in the garden and it's written on the heart. Paul's not talking about moral law. Paul's talking about Sinai covenant in contrast to Abrahamic covenant. Now, I'm not saying there's not continuity between these things. And and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, Moses didn't intend... Things like I draw attention to, drew attention to a moment ago, the marital overtones of Abraham sending his servant 
uh, or sending the angel before his servant to prepare the way. And then the Lord saying something similar so that there are these, these interconnections between these covenants, but we can't confuse the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant. And if somebody tries to impose the Mosaic covenant upon you, I would encourage you to say, let's go read Galatians 3 together. Let's be rigorously biblical. Let's talk about the law the way that Paul talks about the law. There's a lot more that could be said. And if you, we, if you want to pursue that, we can get together. We can talk at potluck or something like that. Verses 9 through 11, I think of the heart of this passage. It, it's, it's the the fellowship, the intimacy with God that results from the covenant. This is what humanity has been longing for since Genesis 3, 6 through 8. Genesis 3, 6, she sees the tree that it's good for food and that it will make her wise. And she took it and she ate and she gave to her husband also who was with her and he ate and their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they hear him coming, and they flee. Since that rupture, humanity has been striving, yearning, seeking what we see in Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. So it's like they go partway up the mountain. And verse 10 is an astonishing statement. It's one of those statements that you stare at and you ponder and you'll just never come to the end of it. They saw the God of Israel. I mean, what did they, what did they see? Did they, I don't know what they saw. And, and he, he doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell us. I mean, there are some passages in the Bible where, where you get statements like in Isaiah 6, the train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, you, you know, you get in, in Revelation 4, you get John's description of, of these radiating waves of light that are emanating from the one seated upon the throne. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel describes one like a son of man seated upon this throne. And, and, and he describes the brilliance and the, the shining radiance of this figure. But here it just says, they saw the God of Israel. And then it goes on. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. That, that pavement of sapphire stone, I think, is what's going to be represented by this bronze sea that is placed at the, at the, in, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And it's also described as, as this, um, it's described in Revelation 4 and Ezekiel 1, this, this thing in the firmament that, that, um, that seems to separate God from everything else. It, it seems to point to his, his unattainable transcendence. And then verse 11 says, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. The reason that statement is there is because he's dangerous. Because the people are sinful and he's so holy that if, if anything contaminated with sin comes into contact with him, death results. But because of the sacrifices that have been offered, because of the covenant that has been put in place... These people can approach. They're authorized to do so. They can see him, and he doesn't lay his hand upon them. And then it says there at the end of verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. I think this is anticipating uh, the covenant meal 
the fellowship meal that God's people enjoy with him once they have been reconciled to him. I think this, this is why Psalm 34, 8, David issues this call in a context where there are Sinai overtime, overtones. You know, Exodus 34, um, 7, David says, those who look to him are radiant. And it's almost as though he's saying, if you trust in the Lord and you look to the Lord and you rely upon the Lord in the same way that Moses came down off Mount Sinai with a shining face, you'll be radiant if you look to him. And then he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's like he's saying, won't you commune with God? Won't you behold the God of Israel and eat and drink? And, and the fulfillment of this comes when the Lord Jesus, he, he, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he says to his disciples, essentially, take and eat and drink and commune with me. So this, this really speaks to reconciliation with God. And I think that it, it, it's pointing forward both to the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every week and also to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That great day when, as Isaiah speaks in, in Isaiah 25, there will be a feast on the mountain of God for the people of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, we want to say to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you want to commune with him? Don't you want to be reconciled to him? And, and we'd love to, if, if it's not clear already, we'd love to go through how it is that you as a sinful, unclean, impure, contaminated, endangered person can enter boldly into the presence of God because of the sacrifice that's been made, the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Because of that sacrifice, we can draw near like Moses is being called to draw near. So verse 12, verses 12 through 14, we're going to read about these, ta this ta these tablets of stone. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone. So again, the people are at the foot of the mountain, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders have gone with Moses partway up the mountain. They've seen God. They've feasted with him. And, and now Moses is entering into the very holy of holies, the presence of God at the mountaintop. And the Lord says, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law, the Torah, the instruction, and the commandment. And then look at what verse 12 says, which I have written for their instruction. That's an amazing statement. Apparently, there were these two tablets, and the Lord himself wrote on the two tablets. These are tragic tablets. If you look over at Exodus 31, in verse 18, when Moses comes down, well, Exodus 31, 18, he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And then in Exodus 34, verse 1, after uh, the, the well, actually, sorry, I skipped over Exodus 32, 15. Look at Exodus 32, 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, 
On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And then in verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Which, when that happens, it's like the covenant is broken from the moment it's made. Chapter 34, Moses is going to be summoned back up up to the mountain, and the Lord is going to give him two more tablets, and they're going to put those eventually in the Ark of the Covenant. But from the beginning, essentially what we're being shown is the Mosaic Covenant, it can't get the job done. It won't do the job. It's broken before the people ever leave Mount Sinai. But Moses is summoned up, and and the Lord is going to give him these these tablets. So back in Exodus 24, Verse 13, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And, and they're going to go to Aaron, and Aaron is going to take a graving tool, and he's going to carve the golden calf. That's what's going to happen. Meanwhile, verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. Now, before we read on, let me just draw your attention to the final words of the book of Exodus and how similar they are. Exodus 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So the cloud that had covered the mountaintop when Moses went up the mountain now moves, once they get the tabernacle constructed, that cloud of God's glory. And, and there's a Hebrew verb here, shakan, uh, which is used to describe the glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai. That, that verb shakan comes to be used to refer to the Shekinah glory cloud. It's this visible manifestation of the presence of God. That cloud in Exodus 40, 34, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then remarkably, Exodus 40, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. So he's able to go up on the mountaintop with the, the cloud and the glory covering the mountaintop, but once they get the tabernacle constructed and God's glory covers the tabernacle and fills it, he can't enter and he's not going to be able to enter until Exodus 9, once they've offered the first sacrifices, and in Exodus 9, verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So Moses goes up the mountain, back to Exodus 24, and he's there for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. I think this is... This is communicating that uh, what, what the Lord is about to do is like a new creation. So there's this six days, and then on the seventh day, the Lord's going to speak to Moses, and he's going to give him the instructions for the tabernacle, which is like a new creation. It's, it's, it's like a, a microcosm, a small-scale version of the world that God made at the original creation. And then we're told in verse 17, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days 
and 40 nights. And in that time, the people descended into idolatry and sexual immorality. The people under the old covenant could not enter. They could not go up into the glory of God. They could not draw near to the Lord. And we don't, praise God, I mean, if, it, listen, if we lived in the, in, the, in the time when it was operative, it was a great thing. But praise God, we don't live under the old covenant. We live in the time of the new covenant. Listen to these words that the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I think what he's saying is this high priest has not gone into the earthly temple, into the earthly holy of holies. He's passed through the heavens and he's gone through the heavenly temple. Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast our confession. What we, what we confess, what we believe to be true, hold firmly to it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace in the holy of holies, in the heavenly holy of holies. The author of Hebrews is saying, come into God's presence and worship him and call out to him in your time of need that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he, what he's saying is it, we don't need some priestly class that enters into the dwelling place of God on our behalf. He's saying we who are covered by the blood of Jesus go there for ourselves. We are all priests. The priesthood of the believer means that you all have access by faith through the blood of Christ into the presence of God. Moses was not up on that mountain thinking about golden calves and sexual immorality. Moses was on that mountain dominated with the awesome glory of the living God. And that's what every one of us needs in our struggle against sin. We need to experience directly the presence of God. So, so I would just plead with you to cultivate times of personal worship. I would plead with you to hear the author of Hebrews saying, since we have confidence to enter the holy of places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. And he's saying we go through that, through the flesh of Christ, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, this should sound like 14, 14 through 16, or sorry, 4, 14 through 16. Verse 22 let us draw near. Like Moses drew near. You can hear the same language being used. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That imagery of the sprinkling of the blood being applied to the blood of Christ, sprinkling us and cleansing our consciences. I don't know about you, but I love our, our confession, our time of confession, the prayer of confession that we do. I, I love the, the renewed sense that I, that I have this opportunity to go before the Lord and lay it all out and have it all covered by the blood. That, is the only, that, it, that will be the only resolution that you will find on earth to the nagging sense of guilt that you feel as a human being. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then he, then he goes on 
speaking this way. What I, what I want you to feel here is both the fear of God that made the presence of God inaccessible to everybody but the high priest. And, and before the high priest, to everybody but Moses. And, and the way that that inaccessibility has been lifted through the making of the new covenant, through the blood of Christ, so that we are all now summoned to draw near. And I hope you feel in your bones what I'm looking for, what I need, what will keep me from succumbing to temptation, what will keep me from feeling like I, I, I've got an itch that I just can't get scratched. What I need is to do what I was made to do, which is draw near and find mercy and grace in my time of need and enjoy the presence of God and, and by God's grace, see the God of Israel with the eyes of faith and eat and drink in fellowship and communion with him. Let's pray together. Lord, the words of the verse are that intimacy with you is for those who fear you and to them you make known your covenant. Please do that, Lord, for all of us. Make us people who fear you. People who recognize how absolute your holiness is. How full of life you are. And Lord, in all the right ways, and in none of the wrong ones, in all the right ways, give us a healthy fear of you. that we might know your covenant, that we might know the depths of the riches of your love for us in Christ, that the Spirit might strengthen our hearts in, in our inner man by faith, that we might know this length and breadth that is unknowable, that we might be compelled morning by morning, evening by evening, coffee break by coffee break, at, at all times, Lord, compel us to come back to you, to worship you, to know you, to walk with you, to live for you. Lord, we pray that you would make us like Moses on the mountaintop, our attention riveted by you, all of our senses stimulated and controlled and and dominated by your presence. Make us people, Lord, who know you and who walk with you, we ask in Christ's name.